All right, my name is John, and uh, if you don't know who I am and have the privilege of preaching God's word for us today, you can go ahead and turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. And as you do, <clears throat> we do strongly encourage you that uh, to take out your own copy of God's word and as well as any note-taking materials. And for reference, I'll be preaching from the English Standard Version. And let's do our best to put aside any distractions as best as we can as we give of our hearts and our attention to the preaching of God's Word today. <clears throat> today we're continuing in the sermon series, studying through the Gospel of Luke, in order to discover, rediscover Jesus. And for some of us, perhaps to discover Jesus for the very first time. But together we want to learn who Jesus is from His Word, what He did and what it has to do with our lives today as He calls us to follow Him. Last week, we saw Jesus teaching about humility, and it's simply because the proud cannot enter the kingdom of God. And in today's text, we'll see that Jesus is still in the same physical setting with the same people, and he hasn't left yet because he had a few more lessons to teach them. So please follow along with me as I read what happens next. Luke chapter 14, verses 15 to 24. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But all, they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please. Have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. And the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done. And there is still, and there still, there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. This is the word of God. Amen. I don't know what kind of food we'll be eating in heaven, but the closest thing that I have to heavenly food on earth is my wife's cooking. I know I can have my own opinion regarding this and my own preferences, but I also know that her cooking is so good that other people are willing to pay for it. Now, Esther, if you know her, she's a cheerful giver, and she usually cooks for other people as a gift. It's her way to express her love and care for others. But after multiple requests from different people came in for her dishes, her desserts, she decided to cook in bulk. And so she would take orders and charge a small overhead, a small cost, and so that they could, she could send the food and the desserts that people order. But what's interesting is that even when she now wants to cook for people for free, as she had always done, as a way to deepen the friendship and the relationship with them, there are some people, interestingly, who just cannot receive it freely. They insist on paying or they insist on returning the favor. So while Esther is offering food and friendship freely, for a variety of reasons, they simply cannot receive it freely as a gift. 
And as we were talking about this, I realized that until these certain people are able to receive her gifts as, as a gift, they will not be able to go deeper beyond a certain point in the friendship. It'll always be at a certain level, surface level, always be a little bit awkward, uncertain, until they're able to receive her gifts as a gift. And I realize this is just a glimpse of our relationship with God. Because among our friends and potential friends, there is room for mutual giving and mutual receiving. We are the same people on the same level. But with God, there is no such thing as mutual giving and receiving with people. Every good thing that we receive from God is only by His grace. Gifts that we as sinners do not deserve to receive. And the greatest gift from the greatest giver is that, that we especially did not deserve is our salvation, the forgiveness of our sins, and the righteousness of God that can become our own. This gift of salvation cannot be bought and it cannot be earned. And when sinners are freely invited to enter into God's salvation, it should not be rejected. These are all, there are many ways, a variety of ways we'll see why people would reject it. But until we're able to freely receive by faith the salvation that God offers to us by his amazing grace, we will not be able to go past a certain point in our relationship with God. We'll always be on the surface. There will always be this uncertainty and this awkwardness. But when we do, when we accept the gracious invitation of God as we should, receiving his grace as a gift, our lives will never be the same. There will be a deeper joy and an unshakable gratitude that brings us through no matter what we face in our lives as we continue to strive to live for God's purposes and live for his glory, to know him and to make him known on this earth. So the one thing for us today is this. Gratefully accept the gracious invitation and then invite others to God's great banquet of salvation. Gratefully accept the gracious invitation and invite others to God's great banquet of salvation. We'll look at three lessons from this parable of the great banquet. First, God graciously made everything ready for salvation and invited many. Second, those invited foolishly made excuses to not come in the end. And third, the gospel powerfully makes us see our need and God's desire to save. So in other words, we'll look at closely at God's grace, why anyone would reject it, and yet how he compels us to come and receive it. Could you bow your heads with me one more time as I pray for the preaching of God's word? <clears throat> Lord, as we come before you with your words of life open before us, we ask that you will speak to us. We, ask, we pray that your word would comfort us, for we are weary living in this broken world. And may your word convict us because it is our sin that burdens us and hinders us from coming to you and, for know, and, to, and to knowing you ever more deeply. And may your word compel us so that we may walk with joy in the obedience that comes from faith in Jesus Christ as we receive the grace as we ought to, as a gift, freely. So, Holy Spirit, Open our ears and minds to hear and receive your word in our hearts to respond with love and greater worship and obedience to you. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Okay. God first. God graciously made everything ready for salvation and invited many. So the setting of this passage, again, is the same setting as the previous passage. Jesus was invited to eat at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. So he was eating with religious leaders and the social elite of that time. And culturally, when you were invited to eat together, it was an opportunity to get to know one another better in a relaxed environment and to build that relationship, grow a friendship But as we saw last week, this was anything but a relaxed environment where friendship was happening. Jesus was invited, yes, but all eyes of the religious leaders, the Pharisees, were on him, watching him to make some kind of mistake. So the dinner started off with bad intentions. But not only that, Jesus did not shy away from speaking up of the wrong things that he saw going on at the dinner party. Jesus rebuked the dinner guests for their pride because they were trying to get into the seats of honor. Jesus also corrected the host, the man who invited him, for only inviting his friends when he should be inviting people who cannot repay him the favor. So this was a tense, uncomfortable dinner. The mood, probably already dead. And just imagine, people are just now standing around. They're not sure where they should sit anymore after Jesus rebuked them. And so they're just silently and awkwardly standing. The host is starting to get anxious because his dinner party is so awkward. We usually play music, right, to fill in the awkward silence. But this guy is losing all hope to save his party. But there was one man, one man bold enough to sit next to Jesus and bold enough to cut the silence and say something to him. It says in verse 15, When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to them, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And it's such a spiritual thing to say. He says something that nobody, especially no Jew at this party, would ever argue against. Without a doubt, it is a true statement. It would be a great blessing for anyone who could enter into God's kingdom, eating and celebrating with God as their king. What he was referring to was the final day when God will make every wrong right, wipe away every tear from the eyes of his people, when God would swallow up death forever, save his people, restore all creation as he fully establishes his kingdom once and for all. And so, Uh, In in scriptures, we often see God's work of redemption described as a great dinner feast, a glorious banquet in his presence on that final day. So the man's statement is good and is true and wonderful and all, and we all long for that day to come. But there's a detail that this man leaves out because it's a detail that he simply assumes. He declares, blessed is everyone who eats in the kingdom of God. But who exactly is everyone? Who will get this privilege to feast in the kingdom of God? And this is where I begin to sense that this man's bold comment contains a misplaced confidence. Because he would not say such a thing unless he was sure that he would be included in God's kingdom. And this kind of misplaced confidence is what we see throughout scriptures among the religious social elite, especially during Jesus' time on earth, during his ministry, throughout his ministry. The common assumption among them was that those who were morally right, religiously pious, the socially respectable, relative to others in society, these were the ones who were guaranteed to be in God's kingdom. They thought they they were the first in line to enter into God's banquet 
they thought they deserved to feast in heaven. And so they hated Jesus, and it makes sense, their hate for Jesus, because Jesus taught that such proud people with, with misplaced confidence in themselves, in their abilities, in their works, they would be sadly mistaken when they're cast out to hell where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so with this man's bold statement, with his assumption, ongoing assumption, it seems that Jesus' previous lesson on humility that he just taught was not getting through to this man's head or this man's heart. And so Jesus tells a parable. For their sake, for their souls, he's saying to this man, just hold on. For a moment, put aside your assumptions and carefully consider how it is even possible for sinners to enter into God's kingdom. How is it possible that undeserving sinners before a holy God could enter into God's banquet of salvation? That's why Jesus starts his parable, this next parable, with but. He says, it says in verse 16 and 17, But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent a servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. Like the common social practice today, if a host wanted to prepare a dinner, the host would send out an invitation and it would be followed up with a second one, a more like a notification. The first invitation, uh, for, in this case, was a few days before the event. It was for the guests to give their RSVP saying, yes, I'll be there, or no, I can't make it. But unlike today, with you know, electronic invitations and Google Calendar, the host would have to gather the RSVP through his servant, who would be his messenger. And as he gets the number of those who are attending, he can then decide how much food and drink to prepare, which was important, especially without easy ways to preserve food like we have today. He would be able to decide if he needs to prepare chickens or some goats, or if everyone was coming, then he would need to prepare to slaughter several cattle to make sure that he could feed all his hungry guests. So for everyone who already said, yes, I'll be there, the host would send the servant again, like a notification, but it would be a second invitation, just when the dinner was about to start. At the time when all the food was ready, when the animals were slaughtered and over the fire, the flatbreads were baking in the oven, the wine jars were opened and degassing before service. When everything was ready, the servant would go out and tell the invited guests, come, everything is now ready. And the invited guests who said, yes, I'll be there, all they would need to do is simply stop what they were doing and go to the banquet. As this parable unfolds, we cannot miss the lesson that God is the greatest host of the greatest banquet ever to be prepared. Because God's banquet is a banquet of salvation for sinners like you and me. And we have to note two important details of this banquet from the beginning of this parable. First, God's banquet is by invitation only. There is no other way in except by receiving an invitation from God. Because without an invitation, sinners have no idea when, where, or how the banquet will take place. And so we cannot force our way into something that we have no idea about. But praise God, because anyone who hears the word of God has already heard the invitation. 
Anyone who reads the word of God has already read the invitation. God invites sinners to salvation to come and feast in his banquet through his word, through scripture. As we read from the Bible, starting from the book of Genesis, God has been sending out his initial first invitation to all of his sinful guests. And now through his son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, we receive the second invitation as he came proclaiming the good news of salvation, proclaiming that he is the one who will fulfill the words of Scripture, all of God's promises for salvation and redemption, as he proclaimed the year of the Lord's favor upon sinners. And Jesus came, making sure everything for our salvation was ready as he died on the cross and rose again from the dead also that sinners could enter into his kingdom banquet. As you hear and read these words of God, you can be sure that you are invited to come. The second detail about God's banquet is that it is by grace only. No one pays. No one brings their own food. They should all simply come freely because everything is prepared to simply come and eat. We have to understand that God offers salvation to sinners freely by his grace. God graciously invites undeserving sinners like us into fellowship and friendship with him to freely come, to freely eat in his kingdom banquet without cost. And it's only possible because Jesus is the one who paid the cost for us for our sins, what our sinful efforts could never ever buy or never earn, Jesus has paid for us with his own perfect, sinless life. So to be crystal clear, salvation is like a kingdom banquet where you come to feast. It is not a kingdom restaurant where you have to pay to get in or pay to eat. In the same way, we don't Think about, even try, dare try to pay for our salvation, earning our salvation. Salvation is not a kingdom potluck where you have to bring a dish and add to the banquet as if the banquet was not good enough. In the same way, we don't add to God's complete work of salvation by our own works. Because in fact, our good works are not even good enough. We cannot make ourselves worthy to be invited to this banquet no matter how hard we try. But when we try to make ourselves more deserving, whether it's by reputation, service, all these good things, when we try to make ourselves more deserving of salvation, we would be making God less deserving of our worship. We'd be dishonoring a dinner host to say, your food is not enough, and your food is not good enough, so I brought my own. How much more dishonoring against God to say, your salvation is not good enough, so I brought my own. Is there any one of us here still trying to bring your own dish to God's kingdom banquet of salvation, trying to earn your salvation by your good works? or by your theological knowledge, by your reputation that you're building up among people, we must be careful. Because the more we try to be deserving of God's kingdom, we'll either be selfishly proud, selfishly proud like the Pharisees, 
assuming that we are guaranteed in. Because, hey, look at my life compared to these other guys. I'm guaranteed in. I'm first in line. Or on the other hand, we will be hopelessly insecure, never sure if we are safe in our relationship with God. So consumed about what we can, uh, that we're not good enough. Doubting, constantly doubting if we are in, even though God is graciously inviting us. We must remember that the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ died for us. Not when we turned our life around, we fixed ourselves up, started, started living right. No, the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ died for us while we were still sinful, still sinners, while we were still lost and hopeless. Jesus Christ came to die for us, to pay the cost, to pay our debt. So we must fully trust in God's work of salvation in Jesus Christ, trusting that his work is secure, that his work is complete, that his work is effective. And the good work he has started, he will continue into, onto completion as we put our trust in Christ, in Christ alone. So stop trying to save yourself. Come freely into salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is the first lesson. God graciously made everything ready for salvation, and he has invited many. And so those invited just need to freely come and enter in. But that's not what happens in the parable. And so the second lesson is this. Those invited foolishly made excuses not to come in the end. Remember that those who were invited in the parable were now receiving their second invitation. They had already said they're coming at the first invitation. And now all the food and drink, everything was prepared for them. Everything was ready. They just needed to come like they said they would. Follow through on their commitment. But it says in verse 18, suddenly, somehow, even when everything was ready, but they all alike began to make excuses. So just imagine you're hosting a dinner. You invite 10 of your friends. You say, come over, dinner, my place, next Saturday, 6 p.m. And all of them said, we'd love to be there. We're coming. And you told them, don't bring anything because you're going to do all the cooking. Just come to eat, enjoy, relax. And you prepare the drinks, the appetizers, the main course, the dessert, everything. Come Saturday, you cook from morning till evening, all of Saturday on your free day. And now it's 5.30 p.m. And just to be nice, nice gesture, you send out a message saying, food is all ready. See you soon. Smiley face, balloons emoji, glass clinking emoji. Heart, heart. <laughs> and at 5.55 p.m., every single one of your friends say, I can't come. Don't even say sorry. And you might reply by sending some other kind of emojis after that. But you would demand to know why they cannot come. You would want answers. Why are you telling me just before dinner starts? And God forbid they don't have a good enough reason because your friendship would be on the line. The relationship is at risk. Your friends better be in danger or else they will soon be in danger <laughs> in your wrath and in your anger. Now, during this time of Jesus, 
the time, this culture of Jesus telling this parable, the rules of hospitality and social etiquette were much more important to be followed than today. So if someone changed their mind at the last minute to decline the invitation they had already accepted, they better have a legitimate reason. It better be an urgent matter of life or death because anything less than an emergency would make their rejection extremely rude, extremely offensive to the host who sacrificed so much, who paid the cost to prepare for their seat at the table. But one by one, the invited guests in this parable present their excuses. And to be honest, we all know how excuses work. We have all tried to make good reasons out of bad excuses. And I'm guilty, along with many, if not all of us. In our sinful world, we naturally try to dress up our excuses as legitimate reasons. Because excuses are actually just weak attempts to try to get out of a commitment without ruining our reputation. And it's so ironic that we would make such excuses in the relationships that are actually so important to us. If you've been on the receiving end of bad excuses, you know just how, you know well just how hurtful such excuses can feel. And how it can strain, put a strain on your relationships. This is exactly why it is foolish to try to make good reasons out of bad excuses. Excuses make a strong value statement. And that value statement is simply that I am more important than you. That my time and my business and my responsibilities and my life is more valuable than you. If only we could just say the truth, genuinely say sorry without trying to cover it up. If we would only bear the shame, our shame, that we could not follow through on our commitments, even after we gave our word, our world would at least be a little bit, a little bit of a better place to live. It would still be broken, obviously, but at least it would make it a little bit better. People owning up. owning up to their commitments they cannot follow through on. Unfortunately, many of our relationships are not free of such excuses. And in the end, with excuses, we still risk everything. Our reputation will still be ruined, but along with that, we risk the relationship. The foolishness of making such excuses is seen in how bad the excuses are in this parable. The first excuse as in the rest of verse 18. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. This excuse was about growing his possessions, buying a field. And he argues, for, for this, this person, he argues his case that he must go. He argues for the necessity, again, trying to legitimize his reason that he must go and see his field. But how foolish, how foolish to say that he must go check it now at this time of the banquet. All the more foolish if he didn't check it earlier before buying it. But how foolish of an excuse to say he must go check it now when everything was ready, when he already said, yes, I'm coming. The second excuse 
Verse 19, and another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. The second was growing his business. Because buying five yoke of oxen, five pairs of oxen, so ten total, they were used for working the ground, for farming, preparing the soil, for sowing the seed. And so his work was probably a farm. In this case, he doesn't argue saying how he must go. He simply says, I go. And that's, there's no missing word there. He's just, he's already on his way. He's on his way out. He set his mind how foolish it is to decide to go now. And again, if he did not check and inspect, examine essential equipment for his business, all the more foolish. The lax excuse, even more so. It says in verse 20, and another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. The third excuse was about growing his family. He got married, and therefore he cannot come. No, risk, no request to be excused. It's like as if he's saying, I'm married. Isn't it obvious? Isn't it obvious to you that I cannot come? Don't even tell me. Don't even remind me. I said yes to the party. Again, no apology. And this time, no room for discussion. But how foolish, how foolish it is to blame his spouse as an excuse. And she's probably thinking, why are you blaming me again? Just go to the party. On one hand, there's nothing wrong about growing possessions, growing your business, growing your family. In fact, I would argue these things are actually good things that God gives to us. But the point here is that it is foolish to try to make bad excuses look like good reasons to not come, to not follow through on your commitment after saying that they will come. They could have just said no to the first place. But they said yes, and now they were willing to offend the host, saying they had more important things to do than follow through on their commitment. If they truly valued the host, the relationship with the host, among other, all these other values that they had, they would not be foolishly risk, be risking their relationship with such bad excuses. They would be willing to put a hold on their possessions and their work and their family in order to come, honor the host, and come to his banquet. Just imagine if you were invited by the president to his dinner banquet, and his agenda was just to get to know us and just for us to get to know him, would we not clear out our schedule, do whatever it takes to make it to that dinner? A highly valuable, valued person with his highly valued dinner invitation, would we not put a hold on other things to come? So in the end, their bad excuses here revealed their true desires. It was not that they cannot come. It was that they do not want to come. They had better things to do, more valuable things to do with their time. With their excuses, they made their strong value statement. The things in my life are more important than you. Foolishly trying to keep their reputation while rejecting the invitation and risking it all. 
with this parable, Jesus is exposing the sinful desires of our hearts. How many commitments have we made to God and find ourselves so flaky and fleeting in them? How easy it is for us to say there's nothing better than being with God. There's nothing better than doing his will. How easy it is to say and sing how amazing, God, your grace is for me. And then we quickly realize it's much harder to follow up with that yes that we have said with our mouths and to live it out in our hearts with full trust, obedience, and surrender to him. We must realize how great our foolishness is, how much greater our foolishness is when we make such excuses to say no to God and the things of God. Because with God, there's no way to cover up our reputation. There's no trying to hide behind legitimate reasons because God sees our hearts. It's all the more offensive to God when we try to make bad excuses look like good reasons putting a hold on God and the things of God while we run off busy with other pursuits in our lives. And we wrongly expect God to simply accept our decisions and our pursuits because we stamp his name on them. In our sin, we wrongly argue that being, we are being responsible, God. These are the responsibilities you have given to me, whether it's possessions, work, or family. And in our sin, we don't even realize we are starting to treasure, cherish the gifts that God has given more than the giver himself. Did not God give us all these good things so that we would be faithful to him? Did he not give us these responsibilities and provide us with the capacity to carry them out for his name, for his glory, to go forth, to reveal who he is to a broken world? He doesn't give us such responsibilities that we would go and make idols out of them. Worshiping, cherishing, loving, pursuing these things more than God himself. Now, when it comes to a dinner, it's not a big deal to excuse yourself. I hope you don't miss the point here. We might have actual legitimate, urgent reasons to miss dinners. But Jesus has been talking about matters of spiritual life and death and eternity forever with God in heaven or forever separated from him in hell. What is more urgent than our salvation? What is more urgent and dire that we would put a hold on God and the things of God and run after the temporary things of this world? We should consider much more seriously that there is no good enough excuse that would keep us from God. What reason is, would be so urgent and so dire than the matter of our salvation. As God exposes our excuses, he exposes our sinful desires, may we consider carefully if we had said yes to God with our mouths, but no to him in our hearts, may we see the foolish risk of ruining, of ruining it all, our relationship with him. So instead of being full of excuses not to come, may we be full of trust and love, and worship for God, valuing Him and His grace in our lives above everything else. We might feel this tension. We might have tried to live for God. How is this actually possible for a sinner like me, for sinners like us? 
There's so many things pulling at our hearts. Good things especially. How can we give our hearts fully in surrender, in worship, in love to the God who invites us to his salvation? How is it possible? We'll see the power that compels us to give up our excuses. The power to overcome them and to be in a right relationship with God. That power comes from the gospel. And this is the final lesson. The gospel powerfully makes us see our need and God's desire to save sinners like us. We've been looking at the gospel at various angles throughout this sermon series. But it comes down to the simple fact that the gospel of Jesus Christ is both bad news and good news. And the bad news is quite painful for us to bear, for us to hear, for us to accept. Because the gospel says that we are more sinful and flawed than we could ever imagine before a perfect, holy God. Not only is it painful at the start of the journey of faith, but it's an ongoing painful process as the gospel continues to expose more of our pride, more of our selfishness, more of our greed, and more of our hypocrisy than we have ever imagined to have. And for God to be holy, he must punish sinners who sin against him. Sinners who give him lip service and say yes to him, but really it's a no in so many areas of life. They will not surrender over to God. To punish those whose hearts are full of foolish excuses and idols. And it is right for our holy God to be angry with sinners who reject him. This is the righteous anger we see in this parable. As Jesus continues in, verses, in verse 21. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry. Let's pause there. The master of the house became angry, and is he not right to be angry? He paid the cost. He prepared everything by his grace. He was the one, but in the end, he was the one who was scorned and shamed by all the guests he invited. But what did he do in his righteous anger? Did he go, drag all these guests, punish them for wasting his grace? No. In his anger, he responds with even more grace. The rest of verse 21, he said to his servant, in the same, very same sentence, he became angry and he said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and blind and lame. What kind of host does this? What kind of host has this unending grace for people who would scorn and shame him. There is no one who is like this host other than our God who is perfectly just in his righteous anger against sinners yet also and also perfectly loving, compassionate, gracious, merciful. He is right to be angry, punishing sinners under, under his terrifying wrath in hell. But his compassion and love still goes out to those in need of salvation. He called his servant, quickly go with an urgency. Go and bring in the lowly and the lost of the city and see how quickly they came. You know, those with the excuses thought they didn't need to be at the banquet. 
They had better things to do. They already had, they were, they already had growing possessions, growing business, a growing family. They didn't value the food and drink at a party because they could easily eat and drink. No urgency to come because they can get what they thought they could get for themselves. Compared to them, see the poor and crippled and blind and lame. If anything, they had more legitimate reasons to not come. The poor could say, oh, no, 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 I, I don't have the proper clothing, or the attire to attend such a great banquet. The crippled could say, I don't have anyone to carry me there. The blind could say, I don't have anyone to guide me and lead me there. The lame could say, it's too hard for me to walk there. More legitimate reasons to not come. But living on the streets and lanes of the city, what did they have? Had nothing, no possessions to claim as their own. No business but to beg. No family to call home and see how quickly they came. As soon as the master commanded the servant to bring them in, says right after in verse 22, and the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and there is there's still, and still there is room. There's still room. The servant went out to bring in all those who are lost and lowly in this city, and still there is room. The big difference here was that they all knew they were hungry, they were starving, and they would never pass up an opportunity to feast at a great banquet. Jesus uses this illustration of a banquet because is it not such a good illustration that explains how salvation is offered and received by sinners like us? Because sinners before God are a very needy people, spiritually starving, spiritually thirsty, completely empty and weary and unable to find anything to eat, even just a piece of bread. It, des it describes how we as sinners are spiritually dying with death all around us because the wages and the curse of sin is death, just waiting for death to consume us. That's all we have to look forward to. But in God's presence, there is life a bountiful feast, even in the face of death, where people can come and eat when they cannot even pay, without cost. All this is by God's grace, where sinners are invited to his banquet, not to be into his presence, not to be destroyed under God's wrath for the punishment of their sins, but welcomed into the Father's joy, welcomed into the joy of God for their salvation, welcomed as his children to enter into the eternal feast of God's kingdom banquet. For those who realize and accept the bad news and accept it to the full, that beyond my imagination, I am more sinful and undeserving and rebellious against God. Only then can we truly receive the good news that we are more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. This is power, the power of God to open our blind eyes to see, to see what it cost God to invite us to his salvation at the expense of his own son dying on the cross 
in our place so that unworthy, undeserving sinners can be called in to our Father's house to be called as children. For those who, whose eyes are opened to see their own need, we would gladly receive grace. We would gladly confess our need, confess our brokenness to receive grace. And when we see God, who is so willing to save us, to do whatever it took, even at the death of his own son, we would come running without a doubt, without second guessing, we will come. For those of us who believe in the gospel, we must remember through the gospel, we are forgiven of our sins, but we are also offered a right standing, a right relationship with God. It's an invitation to the most intimate relationship that anyone can have of secure love and, and secure in love and hope where God says, you're free to come as you are. And as we come, God makes us a new creation in Christ. We no longer need to trust in our own efforts, in our own righteousness, but trust in the righteousness of Christ. Because our trust, and when, that, when, and when our trust is transferred from ourselves, when it's transferred from all these other sources, our possessions, our careers, our families, when our trust is transferred from ourselves and transferred to Christ, our lives will truly be transformed. We'll be filled with a deep sense of gratitude, a joyful thanksgiving through any season and storm that comes our way. We'd grow more secure in the love of our Father, greater willingness to obey and to surrender at whatever the cost to ourselves, knowing Christ has paid the cost for us. Not only that, for those who have received the power of the gospel. It's evidence in how we are compelled to go and extend this invitation to many others, knowing that there is still much room left, that we be compelled by the love of Christ, by his grace that he pours up upon us, the gracious invitation that we are undeserving of. We are compelled to no longer live for ourselves, but to live for Christ, extending his invitation with his love and compassion, willing to go out into the streets and the lanes and even further beyond. In verse 23, when the master says to the servant to go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled, we will gladly go to the people that are so different from us, the people who we assume are so far from God who would never believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, would be compelled by his love to go and compel them to come in. Not by physical force, but with the love that persuades them, with this gospel message that would persuade them, telling them everything is ready. As you hear these words, the invitation is being extended to you like it was extended to me. So come. What is more urgent then your salvation, our love for the lost would grow. 
our willingness to go to the outcasts of our city, to the outsiders who are so far from God. With the love of Christ, we'd go. I pray that it'd be true of us. But for those of us who are still caught up in our excuses, still saying yes with our lips, but no in our hearts, the warning still remains. As we end in verse 24, Jesus says, For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. Beloved friends, may we take this gentle yet serious warning to heart. As the gospel exposes us of our sinful desires, as it exposes us of our ever-growing need for a Savior, may we not try to cover up our need. May we not even think for a moment that we should try to make ourselves more deserving. On the other hand, may we not for a moment doubt God's love and grace, unending grace for you, he says, to come. So when Jesus says, come for everything, for your salvation is now ready, will you come to feast with Christ in faith? I pray we will all be there, joyfully celebrating in our salvation with all the others whom God has invited through us, who, take, who will take up the invitation through our extended invitations that we'll be celebrating in the joy of our salvation in heaven for all eternity, feasting at the marriage supper of Jesus Christ who gave his life for us to come. So come. As we consider how we can apply God's word in our lives this week, I can offer three suggestions to, to do so. First, challenge our excuses. May we see that there's no good enough excuse to put a hold on God and the things of God. What is more urgent than matters of life and death, true matters of life and death in our salvation? For those of us who have yet to believe and put their trust in Jesus Christ, I hope you see there's no reason to delay as you prayerfully consider, carefully consider your need for a Savior. I pray you see that there's no greater value in this world, to know God and to be known by Him. So as we challenge our excuses, may we also see our constant spiritual need for the rest of us. And then, two, cherish God's amazing grace. What a challenge for us, especially those who have been walking with the Lord for some time now. Is God's grace still so sweet to you? If not, there's no need to cover it up. No need to make excuses. Come honestly, even in our flaky and fleeting love and commitment to him, knowing and trusting in his unending grace that he welcomes us. Sinners like us to him. And look again to Jesus, how he paid the price for our sins while we were still enemies of God. Spend time throughout the day holding dear in your heart how God's grace for some mysterious reason, has chosen to reach you while you are still lost, hungry, that God would seek you out to invite you in. Cherish his costly grace so you, that you would come freely by faith 
and enter into God's kingdom and his presence again and again. And lastly, choose where you will go to extend God's invitation. For all of us who have accepted the invitation, Jesus now sends us to go with his heart, with the master's heart, as his ambassadors, as his messengers, to extend the invitation to others. And wherever God has placed you, prayerfully consider that that is where you must choose to go by faith. Whether it's to your friends, to your families, but even beyond, to those whom nobody would go to, to the outcasts in the streets and lanes of the city, to the strangers and foreigners in the highways and the hedges. Are you willing to go to the lost, to the hurting, to the poor, and to the needy with this gospel, presenting the bad news with the good news, even using this parable to explain how God's salvation is prepared like a great dinner banquet, that sinners can come by invitation only, and that God is inviting them by his word as you point them to Jesus Christ, Explain to them how, and, and compel them to come, explaining how sinners can come by grace only. And God is willing to pour out his unending and amazing grace through Jesus Christ. Will we boldly go and compel them, persuade them to come in? So consider these things as we close with the one thing again. Gratefully accept the gracious invitation and invite others to God's great banquet of salvation. I'll close this out in prayer before Pastor Jeff comes out to lead us in response.